Talk of the Devils will be back next week, but in the meantime, we thought we'd give you a taste of a new podcast from The Athletic called The Moment. It's a show with Kelly Cates and Jeff Thomas speaking to footballers who have faced moments of adversity in their lives. This episode is with Luke Chadwick, who talks openly and honestly about the public abuse he received when he broke through at United in the late 1990s and how it affected his mental health. Give it a listen, and if you want to hear more stories from the likes of Gary Lineker, Troy Townsend and others, just search for The Moment wherever you get your podcasts. The Athletic. Can you remember the one moment that changed your life forever? The moment that put everything in perspective. I'm Kelly Cates. And I'm Jeff Thomas. And in this series, we're sharing the stories of sports people who've experienced and overcome moments of adversity. This is The Moment. In 2003... After a 20-year career in football, playing for the likes of Crystal Palace, Wolves and England, I was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukaemia. I was given just three months to live, but after two years of treatment and a stem cell transplant, I overcame the disease. Our guests will share how their lives have been shaped by times of adversity and how those experiences have made them the people they are today. I wanted to speak to fellow sports people to find out how, like me, they overcame these moments. In this episode... For me, it always seemed that vulnerability was a weakness, which is the completely wrong attitude to have, where in, in reality, vulnerability is probably our, our biggest strength and how we can grow so much as people. And if I, if I understood back then what I understood then, I, I could have dealt with it in a, in a different way and in a more, a more positive way. Chadwick broke into the Manchester United first team in 1999, aged just 19. Following in the footsteps of David Beckham, Paul Scholes and Gary Neville, he was the latest fledgling talent from the United Academy production line. Despite his promising impact on the pitch, he quickly found himself the butt of a series of cruel jokes about his appearance, most notably from the popular BBC panel show They Think It's All Over. It took Luke over 20 years to speak publicly about how this treatment affected him and how he felt about being in the spotlight. And he spent the last two years becoming an advocate for people opening up and being honest about their mental health. We spoke to Luke in January and picked up the story back in those early days at Old Trafford. So Luke, let's just start by kind of placing you right at the beginning of of your career really as a as a youth player about all the kind of the ambitions and and being part of of Manchester United at, at that time yeah it was um like an incredible part of my life I was brought up in a small village in Cambridge never and my dream was always to to play for my local team Cambridge United that was a team I used to watch as a kid my dad used to take took me and that's the reason I sort of fell in love with football so when um Man United come calling when I was 14, 15 years old, it was obviously a dream come true to go up there to train with them, to end up getting signed by them. And then at 16, upon leaving school, moving up there and becoming my life as a professional footballer, as a YTS player there. So it was um, an incredible journey, something I probably weren't expecting, something when I first went up there, I was incredibly excited, but also scared about, I was an extremely 
quiet, shy, shy young boy. And it was always sort of going out my comfort zone, go up to Manchester to meet all them new people. But the second I got up there, it was the environment that I walked into was just like took my breath away, really how pleased everyone was to see you, how enthusiastic all the coach, everyone just seemed to to love to be there. And I just fell in love with the club straight away and was desperate to do well enough for them to, to them to sign me, which fortunately they did in the end. Because moving away from home at, at 16 and sometimes even younger, isn't that unusual in football? And I think we all sort of take it as, as normal, but actually looking at it from, from an adult's perspective, 16 years old and going off and you start sort of making your way in the in the big world. Yeah, it was a huge, huge step to, to make. I don't think you appreciate it. I appreciate it more now as a as an old older man, but at 16, you're just sort of part of the journey, caught up in it all, and you move up there. I think my um my mum had a few tears today. My dad drew me away, but I don't think you think about it as much. It was um incredible just obviously to to get away from school where you do all them shouldn't probably say it, but them things that bore you quite a lot to then go up to, to do what you love doing every day and playing football, particularly when you're walking down the road from my digs in Littleton Road and walking into the cliff, a place that's steeped in in so much history. I mean, in terms of where I was from, like the, the village that I lived in, I couldn't have had much more of a change in terms of them moving up to Littleton Road in Salford. The only time I'd seen a place like that before I went up to Manchester was watching Coronation Street on the TV. <laughs> so it was certainly a change in my life, but something I was incredibly excited about beginning. So when you say you moved into Diggs, was it with a family or was it with fellow teammates? Yeah, so there was two of us in my Diggs. There was another um, guy called Jason Hickson who was starting his journey at the same time and he's Actually, quite a funny story. The the digs that I was in was the the guy that ran it was the grandfather of Phil Bardsley, who went on to to have a fantastic career in the game as well. But his um Phil's dad ran the local working man's club just up the road from the digs. So it was um like I say, completely different but incredibly exciting. And also you were going in so a bit later than the, the class of ninety-two, but having seen the progression of the youth and the success that, that the youth teams at Manchester United and youth players had gone on to have. I mean, you you must have just thought the sky was the limit. Yeah, I think that's what you need, like seeing you've got them role models there, them incredible players that just four, five, six years before had made their mark and were now part of the first team and sort of the top players in the first team. So I think all young players need that, need them aspirations to see that that it is possible. Don't get me wrong. When I went up there at 16, it was, I couldn't imagine being in that squad, to be honest with you. It was up there to, to get an incredible education. And it, it was a, a huge surprise that I ended up getting some game time and playing a few games, but you just sort of just take that progression, that development. You're working with a, the best coaches in the world, probably playing with some of the best other young players in the country and your development just improves and goes up so much in such a short space of time. Do you remember getting called up into the, the not not necessarily your debut, but that, that moment where you get called up and it's like, right, you're, you're going to come now and, and train with the first team? Yeah, I remember it very well. I think I was one of the players, I was really comfortable in my own group with my peers, but I was one of the, all the other lads were desperate to train with the first team. I was one of them thinking, 
I hope I don't have to train with them, but when you do, obviously, <laughs> it's, it's incredible. But I remember sort of um, doing the warm up and doing the little run throughs behind the likes of David Beckham, Roy Keane, and that sort of thing, thinking, wow, this is this is the biggest day of my life. It's just another <laughs> training day for these guys. But it was um, incredibly nerve-wracking. But when the when the football starts up, when, when I always felt sort of most at home, when I was just running around playing football and you just sort of get on with it then. And I think I had quite a, a good session that day and trained quite well. And obviously the, the confidence that get that gives you, knowing that you can play at these these levels that, that are set at a club like that. It's pretty quick, isn't it? Two years from joining Man United to making your debut in the first team. Because like you, nowadays you, you, you're into that sort of community from the, about the age of eight, ten, aren't you? But to be thrust into the big time so quickly must have been difficult. Yeah, I think... Um... It's changed so much in terms of, I'm sure it was the same when you were coming through, Jeff. It weren't the same as now where you're in a club from eight years old and you train three times a week. It's a slightly different process. Whether whatever's right or wrong, I'm not sure. But it was from like a couple of years ago, you'd be playing in a, a school game on the local park to then be playing on the main pitch at the cliff with, with these players. It was um, certainly very much of a whirlwind experience. And then you you make your debut. Uh, it was a late substitution, wasn't it? Just a, a little bit of a taste of that Old Trafford atmosphere against Middlesbrough. Yeah, Premier League. I remember it well. I come on with about I don't know two minutes two minutes to go. I think we were winning one 0 and I was thinking, God, I hope they don't score and they equalise. <laughs> ran around like a headless chicken. I think I got the ball twice and tried to run with it as far as I could. Got tackled and landed on my ass a couple of times. But I came <laughs> off the pitch with just. Like on cloud nine, I remember I was going off to to play with the England under 21 straight after the game. But I think I had a, a smile on my face for about two weeks after that, having played for the no one can take that away from you. Then I came on at Old Trafford in the Premier League for the best team in the country by distance at the time. And it was um something I didn't make a huge impact in them two minutes, but something that I'll, I'll certainly <laughs> never forget. I, they made a huge impact on you. Maybe maybe it's that way round instead. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine more like that, more like that. And it it just sounds because often when you talk to to players and they've retired, they say they wish they'd taken more time out to to enjoy the game, to to sort of really um, cement those memories for themselves. It sounds like like you did that, like you had a really good grasp of how to enjoy every second of it. Yeah, I think it was so, I mean, as I say, I was quite surprised when I went up to Manchester. I weren't one of the, the best players in my team at the time. All the other boys, a lot of them played for England and their national teams. And I just went up there and just had the mindset of just working as hard as I possibly could and seeing where it took me. So to to get to the to the level and to play some games for that team was, was something I'm incredibly, incredibly proud of. You've talked recently, particularly on, on social media, about how everything wasn't rosy it wasn't quite how it how it looked off the pitch for you tell me a little bit more about that yeah I think like from them ages of 16 to 18 were probably the the best years of my life I'm sure the players would say the same them scholars where you're with your teammates every day having a laugh playing football every day and then getting in the first scene was obviously incredible and you, you start getting a little bit more attention I think where I struggled was the attention that I received was probably not around my footballing ability, it was around the 
my appearance, the way I looked, which I found incredibly uncomfortable with. I just, I didn't, my dream was always to, to be a professional footballer, wherever that may be. It wasn't really around getting famous, the fast cars, et cetera, et cetera. It was just sort of playing football. So I found, I found the attention hard in general, people knowing who I was, but when it was around such a, a strange thing in terms of being sort of poked fun at because I had spots on my face, teeth stuck out, that sort of thing. I didn't know how to how to deal with it. I'd not really educated myself. I didn't have a huge amount of emotional intelligence as I'm not sure that many 19-year-old boys have got sort of thing. So it was an incredibly hard thing to deal with for me and really affected my life off the pitch more than anything where I, it caused me an incredible amount of anxiety. I was obsessed by people shouting at me when I went out or saying negative things about my appearance. And it was a, like I say, a hugely challenging time at that part of my career. You know, was it, was that all the noise coming from outside the football club? Because I know the dressing room can be a cruel place as well. What was it like in there? Yeah, the dressing like the the people, the players that I was lucky enough and so thankful for played with, there was never any problems there. I wouldn't be picked on or anything like that by my teammates. It was more outside. It was when it came to light on the TV show, they think it's all over. That was what I could deal with it in the crowds. Obviously, it's not nice to hear yourself get abused from the crowd and that sort of thing. But that sort of, maybe it shouldn't be, but that's part of the, the job. I can deal with that. But it just felt so unfair to me that it was outside influences more than anything, something that I didn't want to happen. I weren't putting myself in a position other than being a footballer to sort of accept that. And it probably more than anything, I felt there was something wrong with me that it was making me feel so bad because it was such a, a schoolboy sort of name-calling sort of thing that I, in my head I was thinking I'm the problem here because I should be able to deal with this but it's really affecting me in a, in a negative way. Well that's very it's very personal though isn't it that, that sort of feedback you're getting but you, you know you as a footballer you, you're expecting to be ridiculed sometimes I mean I was ridiculed on the Mary Whitehouse experience on TV so I, I knew in some sorts what you were going through but that was about my football ability, nothing else. It's very personal what they were saying about yourself. Yeah, and I'd like obviously, I think obviously it's never nice to hear your your footballing ability ridiculed. But I think yeah, I can. I've, I've had it enough. I, I can. I can deal with that. It's sort of. It was such a feeling of. So I can't make this a feeling of complete helplessness. Of I can't stop it, but because of that, I was such a a quiet, shy, introverted young man that. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to tell my family because I thought it might upset them if they knew how bad that I was feeling about it. So just kept it, kept it all inside. And I think in terms of the the social media that I posted a couple of years ago, it was it wasn't an attempt to make the for people that done it feel bad or get any sympathy. It was a case of that time when we started going through the the COVID situation. Well, I'm sure everyone's mental health was fluctuating so much in such a strange situation that the best avenue what I should have done was talk about my problems but I just felt like I couldn't because I didn't have the the emotional intelligence to deal with it to understand it in my own mind to then express myself about it and if I did I'm sure I would have 
felt a lot better about it. Just that whole weight getting sort of lifted off off my shoulders. It's also the case, I mean, you, you talked about it as being sort of schoolboy humour, but you weren't much more than a schoolboy yourself. You know, you're at an age where you do take things very personally, where you are quite raw and you are very lacking in, in self-confidence. Yeah, without a doubt. I weren't a, a confident guy by any stretch of the imagination. This sort of magnified that even more in terms of like, why are they saying this about like, I could... I obviously knew that I had spots on my face, my teeth stuck out. I'd look at myself in the mirror and I didn't think I looked that bad. And I'm just thinking, why why are they doing this to me? And I, like, it's not as if I'm not, I've not got no issue, any issues with the the people that done it. I'm sure they're, they're good people. And I'm like to think if they knew how bad I was feeling about it at the time, they would have stopped doing it. But it was that complete feeling of helplessness of, I can't make this stop and I'm not going to, say anything to anyone. So it's just a case of just getting on with it to a certain extent. Did you confide in anybody at all? A, a teammate or a good friend? N- not Nothing. My girlfriend was living up there, so it must have been hard for them. My parents, it was bad, obviously bad for them to hear and see, see this, but I just couldn't bring myself to say anything. I never wanted to put my problems on anyone else in terms of, I didn't want anyone to know how bad it was making me. So people had obviously mentioned it and I'd just sort of laugh along or say, no, nah, I'm fine with it. It doesn't matter. When in reality, I had the opportunity to speak to people that that asked me about it, but just never chose to do so because the embarrassment that I felt inside of me for feeling the way that I was feeling, which is obviously completely wrong, but it was what was in my my mind at the time. I think it's, it's something that particularly men and, and young men listening to this would have to maybe take a moment to put themselves in in that situation. Because as Jeff said, the dressing room particularly can be a can be a tough place. And there's a there's a level of I don't know, mockery that is acceptable. Do do you think that people know where the where the line is? Is there a line and, and is it defined necessarily yeah I think it's a in response obviously when I was at school that I'd have arguments and people would say stuff about my and I'd say something back that's obviously not right in a dressing room you'll have a bit of banter and you can say it, it was more the fact that there was nowhere I could like there was no saying stop it because it was a, a tv show and it like there was nothing in my mind perhaps they could I could have spoke to someone at a tv I mean I don't know how it all worked but and potentially it could have stopped. But I think in terms of that, I think there is a line that has to be drawn somewhere and you can see, I think when you're doing something or having a conversation, a bit of banter with someone face-to-face, you can you can see where it's going. Whereas in this case, it was a really strange situation, but no one knew how it was, it was making me feel, but it was making people laugh, which made it worse for me because it felt like at one stage the whole country's laughing that's watching this tv show because nothing that i've done wrong or anything just because of the the way that i looked yeah so you've got them speaking to millions of of people you've got no way of of answering back to them or to to give anything back to them or to to put your side of the story to them and it just it's bullying it's classic bullying from people in position of power to somebody who has has no voice in the matter 
Yeah, and I mean, bullying, obviously, it's a huge word to use. Bullying, I wouldn't like to throw that at anyone. Obviously, like I say, I don't know. They don't know how it made me feel at the time. And it was obviously a different a different world back then. Where I'd like to think that this sort of thing would never happen again on national TV and, and for people to feel how I did back then. I think it's um, it's hard to explain how it's it's obviously it it taught me a lot about myself as well as I said in terms of I could never show the the vulnerability as a football player growing up in the game and playing in the game for me it always seemed that vulnerability was a weakness which is the completely wrong attitude to have where in in reality vulnerability is probably our our biggest strength and how we can grow so much as people and if I if I understood back then what I understood then, I, I could have dealt with it in a in a different way and in a more a more positive way. Do you think you've used social media to come out and express what you were going through at the time? Do you think if social media was around there, it, it would have hastened the you know your reaction to it, and you would have fought back using social media as well? I, probably not, because of the the person that I was back then. I think if social media was about back then, I probably would have received a lot more sort of abuse as as footballers, celebrities, whatever do do today. But it's, it's probably not. It's taken a lot of growth of self to sort of understand and and deal with the stuff that I went through. Even now, sort of thinking, it still feels like a such a silly thing in terms of the name calling and, and what it was. But it's it certainly helped me sort of grow and develop and understand myself a lot better. I wouldn't change it in my journey that I've, that I've been on so far, but it was such a extremely challenging time throughout the sort of 12 months or whatever it, that, it, that, that it was happening. Do you feel it affected your football? I feel, I generally don't feel, football was the one place where I felt at home where I was the release, I could run around, I'd get lost in the game. I think the reason that I didn't make it as a top player is because I didn't didn't have enough ability to be able to do that for one reason or another. I don't think it affected my time on the pitch because like I said, that's what that was what I was doing. I just loved it when I was playing football. All I'd think about was football. It was probably off the pitch challenges that that affected me more than than anything else in terms of not wanting to to go out the house, just going to football and back and probably not living a healthy lifestyle, not really having the balance that I should have done, particularly as a as a young man growing up, sort of living his dream. Just to go back to the fact you say you you didn't make it, you you played for Manchester United in the Premier League. It's not that by a lot of people's standards, that is very much making it. I know, so yeah, don't get me wrong, I'm incredibly proud of the career I had for Manchester United playing for other clubs in terms of not being a player that, played for Man United for 10, 15 years or moved on to top top clubs, as it were. I don't, I'm not speaking myself down. I'm incredibly proud of, of having even played one minute for, for a club like that. And it, it's only to go back to the the um, the point about it affecting your football. There's, I, I think it's, it's really interesting, this ability to kind of separate what's going on in your own life, in your own sort of internal world with what's going on on a football pitch and how much that seems to be 
like a separate life for, for footballers. It seems to be somewhere that is completely different from, from everything else in, in their world. Yeah, and I, I mean, like looking back now and looking at football in general is whether that is a completely healthy thing. As I said, when I was growing up from the age of nine and I was a talented footballer scoring a lot of goals in the local teams and then moving on and progressing through and football, it just identifies you or it identified me completely. All I was, in my mind, was a football player and probably never took the time. And I think education is key in, in everything, but sort of the the most important subject we probably ever learn about is ourselves. And I think that understanding the self is gets lost a lot of the time in professional football because you are just identified as a footballer and that is your whole life. And probably you forget about developing yourself and in my journey that sort of emotional intelligence the understanding of self I never I never had that it was all just about football and maybe if that would there was more education from the younger ages from sort of 10 11 12 of that importance of knowing yourself why you feel a certain way in a certain situation it would have been easier for me to express myself as a 18 19 year old boy when I was dealing with the the issues that I went through. When you look at the at the tweet, it looks like it's a moment, a, a sort of switch is flicked and suddenly you decide, I'm going to talk about this. I imagine it was a bit more of a process than that. Yeah, to, to be honest, it was like I went on um, social media because of the, the organisation I, I work with now and I've never done it before I put a load of tweets and the majority of the stuff I put on social media is just terrible terrible banter really it's not particularly <laughs> funny so I wanted to put something on there because it was a we were in a a serious position the world was in a a really serious and don't get me wrong I don't see myself as a high profile person who's going to change a lot of people's thoughts but if it just helped one person the, the message it was trying to be a a positive message of if you are struggling although uncomfortable, try and talk about it because it is it is an incredible avenue of dealing with problems, is opening up, whether that's to someone you love, a counsellor, whoever it may be, because it is it is the first step on improving your mental health and making yourself mentally healthy. So during your football career then, do you have no regrets? Nobody sort of identified what you were going through in the world of football? No regrets in my footballing career. Don't get me wrong, it was there was huge ups, huge downs throughout the career. I think my biggest regret in my life is upon being a talented footballer and signing for Man United at 14 is probably then just thinking school's a waste of time and not educating myself and just concentrating fully on the football and thinking that it's football lasts forever. That's that is my personal biggest regret in terms of my career. Like I've done some things I should have done, done things I shouldn't have done, but I don't have any regrets on that journey that, that I went through and where I'm at now. Luke, when did you start talking about your, your mental health and, and that kind of process and, and that, that sort of split time? Yeah, I think sort of upon the, the issues that I suffered with when I was at Man United, I think that as I left the club and went to clubs throughout the leagues, I think you've you notice that, that obviously the microscope's not on you as much. You, no one's, people aren't as interested in you in mainstream media. So I didn't really suffer and I probably got over it, but never dealt with it 
sort of completely. I think as coming out of football was a was a huge challenge for me in terms of really suffering with a loss of identity at the end of my career. And I think that's where I thought that's when I learned that I need to to let it out. I need to show vulnerability because I'm just in a bit of a a bit of a hole here. I don't know what I'm going to do. Where do I fit in the world without being a footballer? What I've seen myself as and people have seen me as for the past 17, 18, 19 years, whatever it was. So I think the biggest change for me and probably the biggest challenge, probably bigger than the, the challenges at Man United was finishing my football career and then going through a process of understanding that I'm I'm not a football player anymore. What am I? I've got to get to know myself as a person now. I'm not Luke the footballer, I'm Luke the person who doesn't play football anymore. And I think that's where I really started to understand and seek help and speak to people and really deal with with the mental health issues that, that I went through at that time and probably was going through in and out throughout my, my football career. And particularly hard, not just as a, a sort of grown man now, but as a young man going through all of that. It's it's not, you know, it's not something that, that young men do, particularly in the sort of early 2000s, to go out and talk about how you feel and to talk to people if, if you're struggling. Yeah, and it, it's just as challenging today, I think, at them sort of ages to to talk about how you're feeling and to, to express yourself. But I think provisions and things are improving. There's still a huge amount of work still, whether it's professional football or or anyone, really. One of the most important things or the most important thing is how we feel day in, day out. And I think having provisions and being able to to talk about your mental health is something that can improve your life so much. Even like when you've got good mental health and you talk about how good you feel when you've got poor mental health, talk about why you're feeling like that and understanding we don't. It's such a important avenue that if if people can do, I think it's it means so much in the improvement of their life. So the work you're doing now, is are you going out with what you've gone through, your experience, are you spreading the news of you don't need to bury that for such a long time before releasing all that, you know, that negativity? Yeah, I think what what we're doing now at the Football Fun Factory is more sort of came out of uh, my playing days, obviously really struggled, went down the coaching route, coached at a professional club because that's what you sort of in my mind, that's what old footballers do. I need to go and do that then. But I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't get out of bed with a spring in my step and I went to the sessions and there was young players, older players, and there just weren't enough smiles, as it were. It seemed to turn into a a job for for children, in essence, way too early, where it's just a, they're, they're on a journey, but they don't see it as a journey. It's more the, the destination. I'm going to play at this professional club and I'm going to become a professional footballer. When in reality, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You'll know better than me, Jeff. That's not how it works. It's sort of making football, just making football fun, not playing because you're going to be a professional footballer, regardless whether you're a boy, girl, any ability. You, football should be fun for everyone and people should be smiling playing it. And that's what why I came on board with a football fun factory because it reminded me so much of when I started playing at seven, eight, nine years old. I can't remember one bit of tactical or technical advice the the coach gave me back then but I remember running around with a big smile on my face having the time of time of my life and it's trying to replicate that 
for every child that can just come and develop, use football as a as a vehicle to develop positive life skills just as much as positive football skills. And to, that then first experiences in football, as well, first experiences in anything you do are so important. If you have a positive first experience in something, you tend to enjoy it, then they end up loving it. So what our responsibility is as coaches within the football fun factory is develop that love for children. So when they start kicking a ball as young as two, three, four, five, six, seven, however old it is, that they still love it when they're 40 years old like me because it's something to love, regardless whether you're, don't get me wrong, we were lucky enough to, to have a career in football. But I like to think if I didn't have a career in football, I still love the game as much as I do now because of them early positive experiences that I had in it as a child. Those comments that you were, you were making about the sort of early training sessions, just it reminds me of that that saying, you, know, you never really remember what people said to you, but you always remember how they made you feel. And I think that's kind of what I'm getting from you about the, the training sessions and what you think it's important to give to, to young, not even young footballers, young kids who play football. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that is what happens in football is it, it tends to be in teams and whatnot that the the talented children probably get the most attention because they're developing them and see see where it might take them. What we're so passionate about is every child gets the same attention. They all get spoken to by the coach. They all get told what they're what they're doing well. And what we try and like I say, we celebrate positive life skills more than the football skills. So at sessions, we'll celebrate the little boy or girl who helped another child up because they fell down and hurt themselves, the ones that will help get the the cones in at the end of the sessions, the ones that show incredible manners. And like I say, just using football as a real positive vehicle to, to promote it because people love football. And if we can use that in a positive way, then more children are going to fall in love with the game, which is brilliant. And if they're developing positive life skills at the same time and having an, an education in why it was brilliant, why they helped that little and up because or helped tie their shoelaces up, then I think it gives that real positive self-esteem about the game that you don't have to be incredible at it to still enjoy it. Like you said, lo- lots of kids go through these academies from very young age, from sort of eight and up. And lots of them do great work in terms of supporting their schoolwork to give, try and give them a sort of wider range of, of life skills. Um, you know, not just their, to develop their, their footballing talent, but the pressure that, that some of these kids are under. Where, where do you think that comes from? Is it from coaches? Is it from parents? Where's it from? Yeah, I think like everyone's completely different. You see it, you see kids who get a lot of pressure from their parents. I, when my, youngest he's 19 now he started playing as a as a six-year-old and I was helping support the team and I was an awful football parent because I thought he should be working hard because I'm a professional footballer he should and it, it took me uh educating myself in that to understand that he didn't like me go, taking him to football because I'd give him a hard and it, to see that and that broke my heart in two to see that my own little boy who's grown up watching me play his start in his journey and I'm putting too much and I can like learn really early in, in my children's football in life that all that matters is that they're having fun all you want to see is your children smile whatever they're doing and I think too often it when it it's a professional club and it turns a, a little bit serious because 
they might become a professional footballer now. And obviously the coaches want them to do that. And they put the children put pressure on themselves because they want to do as well as they can. I think it's coming away from that. I can only go back to my own sort of journey in football. I had no pressure put on me whatsoever by my parents. My mum couldn't always get to the games. My dad would take me, but they'd just stand and watch the game and not offer to... And that, I think it's so important that we take our hands off and see, just let them enjoy it and find a way because you're never going to become a professional footballer and you're never going to love the game unless you fall in love with it at some stage. And that's what football should be. So I think there is huge amount of pressures on these young kids that are coming through and have got a reputation at the age of 15, 16. And it's sort of just letting children, as they're not players, they're children, just letting them develop and getting where they're going to, of course they need coaching. Of course they need pushing at certain stages, but you've got to, you've got to let children develop and they've got to fall in, like I say, I keep saying it, but fall in love with the game because I can't imagine there's, if any players that are playing at a high level of football that don't that don't love it and then stay in love with it because it's such a challenge then when it can turn into a job and it's not got that same innocence to it when you're getting paid for it. And I think it's the key is going through that journey and whatever happens, keeping your personal relationship and that love of football that you got when you was a child with you the whole way through. That's how I, there was times in my career when I'm thinking, this isn't fun anymore, but I'd always go back to them, that six, seven, eight-year-old Luke who was running around all over the place. And that's what made me fall in love again with the game. What do you think about watching professional football now? You, you look at, you mentioned the youth football, but you see so many skilled players playing at the top level now. And they don't seem to be enjoying it like we, they're even scoring a goal. They seem to be trying to get a message across all the serious about this more than going, wow, I've just done something fantastic. Yeah, and I do completely understand. I agree with you there. When you when I watch football, I just love when you see someone like Messi or whatever, and it just looks like he's, he's still on the playground with his mates dribbling through, and it just looks like he loves it. It's all you, all you want to see when you're watching a, a Premier League, obviously you want to see fantastic football, a Premier League game, a game on the park when you're walking through on a Saturday morning, there's people smiling because they're doing it because it's something they enjoy because... For me, that's what what football should be. Because if we're not enjoying it, then what's the point? And also, you're, you're right to point out the fact that at some stage it becomes, you know, a profession, and it becomes something that you do to pay your mortgage and to kind of do the grown up things in in your life that that you have to do. But do you think that keeping that that sense of fun and keeping that that love of the game? rather than losing that completely to the professionalism and to the, the absolute dedication, do you think if you can have both, then that's a better way of getting the best out of players? Yeah, I think it's, it's finding that that happy medium. I think the players that get paid the most money are probably the ones that enjoy it the most because they're incredibly good. And don't get me wrong, there's huge pressures, obviously playing in the, the lower leagues myself and your, your contract's coming to your end and you're thinking, flipping heck, I don't, how am I going to pay the like you say, the mortgage next season. But I think it is, it has to be something that you love because football was, other than my family, obviously, football was my first love. It was something I fell head over heels in love with at the age of six or seven when I went to watch my first game at the Abbey Stadium to watch Cambridge United and just sort of 
seeing, being so close to the players, smelling the turf, hearing the crowd. And it's it has to come back to that because I don't think you can perform at your highest, your own personal highest level unless it's something that you are enjoying. Don't get me wrong. I know that there's huge amount of pressures that come with that, whether you're playing right at the top of the game or towards the, the lower leagues. Luke, I've got to mention this. Were you there, 1990, FA Cup quarterfinal? Yeah, Alan Pardew. <laughs> I played for him a couple of times. Well, it broke my heart that day. No, I scored with a flipping rubbish right foot shot. I was Don't take the you? limelight away from me with a rubbish right foot shot. Yeah. Are you um, you ruined my dream then? Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were on our way to Wembley that year. <laughs> you beat some big clubs on the run there as well, didn't you? Yeah, Sheffield Wednesday was a one. They've, um, Chris Waddle was playing. It was um, a cre- incredible run. And then, yeah, you guys just um, ended the dream. And then you got to the final as well, didn't you? With Man United. Man United, yeah. What could have been? Luke, since you since you kind of tweeted and since you've started talking more openly um, about about these issues... Has anybody spoken to you about them? Has anybody been in touch with you? To be like, when I originally tweeted, I could that first tweet, I can't never imagine that it get the sort of the response that it did. And like the best feeling I've ever had probably, and this includes scoring a goal, playing football and whatnot, was receiving sort of messages, emails from people that said, like, thanks so much for doing this. You've helped me. And like that, that feeling inside was like to get that was, because I never expected that at all really so stuff like that is obviously incredible obviously there was guys off the the tv show um nick hancock and gary lineker apologized for for their partner but again it, it was never about that and that was probably something that got lost in terms of there was a lot of press releases about it and it was more about pointing the finger at people when it was never about that there was no need for for these people to apologize obviously it was nice that they did, I hold no grudge to him whatsoever. It was simply trying to be a a positive message at a really challenging time for everybody. Like you said, it wasn't something that you were looking for and it wasn't something that you were holding individuals to account for. But how did it make you feel when, when you did get those apologies? Yeah, like, it was not like, it, so much water had sort of, passed under the bridge like it was 20 odd years ago and I obviously respect the people a lot for for uh, apologizing it probably didn't make a huge amount of difference because like I say I'd probably I was over what had happened back then but again obviously a lot of respect for the people that sort of said they were sorry because it's always a, a hard thing to do. And so now having had the the experience that that you did in the game and with the the mental health side of things and and the fact that you've you've kind of come through and like you said learned about yourself um as as part of that how much of that now goes into the football fun factory yeah i think in terms of is it probably for me it's great for me to just go to our sessions and see the kids smiling that makes that makes me feel good like i say i think education is key to everything don't get me wrong we're not educating these children on their mental health per se but we're trying to to make them feel good about themselves every single one because that's what football should be it should be for everyone inclusive for all boys and girls and them all having a, a good time a good time doing it I mean I think 
in terms of the the professional side of football, I think there's still and I think there's improvements in these in the academies and the young players coming through of that sort of education. But I think the the biggest thing missing is the the understanding of I said at the start self in terms of people understanding themselves and understanding the way they feel. And don't get me wrong, I'm not a an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know how that can happen, but I think more time needs to be made for young people in general, regardless whether they're talented footballers or not, but uh, to really understand themselves from younger ages, to be able to to deal with things in a positive manner when they move into, into adulthood. Yeah, because we, I suppose the top clubs will have psychotherapists available they will have psychologists on on the team to for players whether they use them or not is is a different matter altogether but is this something that you'd like to see more widely spread throughout football that players have access to to this kind of help in the same way that they have access to a physio yeah, definitely and again like when I, I look I, I can only talk for myself and my own journey I think how I was as a person in terms of I don't think I would even if I had all them things I would have been open to do it. But I think the provision should be there for as many people as possible and it should be easily accessible in terms of people should be able to do this at the flick of it, like the, the world that we live in now in terms of a tap of a button and you can you can talk to someone and maybe I found it easier talking to people that I didn't know in terms of at the end of my football career, more comfortable than speaking to, to someone I loved because I didn't, like I said, I never wanted to put my problems on anyone else. So to speak to someone that I didn't know made it easier for me to to really open up and talk about my feelings. So I think as many people as possible should have that provision. Obviously, there's a, a huge amount of, of money in football and I, I think some of that should be to, to look after all of the players, regardless of they're the ones that are going to make the club 20 million quid when they get through or the ones that aren't going to make it as footballers. But like I say, this is not just a, a football problem, not a problem, but not just, it's, this is, there needs to be more done for everyone in terms of the understanding of their mental health. And I think the, the only way that that can happen long-term is through education of it. But it sounds like the education should start a lot earlier as well, because you're saying you, you've, turn into a, a man and you, you're saying that you had that support network there but you never took it up but I think if you educated the youth like the eight nine ten year olds start saying I need help that would open up a, a different sort of um, support network that probably wouldn't be there for because like you know Luke in a in the football environment you've got to be a little bit macho yeah. And, yeah, and saying that you've got a weakness is a weakness. Well, that's what it used to be, and that should be admitting there is something that you you need to talk about should be something positive. Without a doubt, I think it is like like you say there. I think it's always well, not always, but in, in my eyes, which is completely wrong as a as a young man, a young boy, showing weakness was a like vulnerability was a weakness, and like like you say there, the education of the younger children of understanding. So I think that is a, how it needs to, to be sort of thing. So you, when you get, I think in, we see a lot of, there's a lot of provision out there for professional footballers, but that is, it's always um, reactive. So it's when you reach crisis point that you, 
that's when you you deal with someone and you talk about it. I think we need to be more proactive in terms of so we don't get to that that point. And that's when we start dealing with the problems. We need to be understanding ourselves and understanding what we're going through or if we're feeling bad, when we're feeling good at them at youngest ages, like you talk about, because then I think that's when we won't get to crisis point as much and then having to deal with things. And so having said all of that, how are you, Luke? I'm okay. I'm good. To be fair, I'm like I've been through challenges as everyone has. And I think now I'm probably as happy as I've ever been in my life. I think I've got through obviously incredible internally grateful to to have a career in playing football, what I what I love doing. But probably now I understand myself more than I ever done. I sort of I think I've always loved myself, which is so important to love yourself, but I'll probably over recent years and finishing football, understand why that I love myself and see the, the positive traits in me, know that I've got stuff to work on every day. But I think it's the power of knowing who you are inside out is is priceless. And I think that's how I feel. I feel incredibly confident because I'm, I can show vulnerability now. I don't see it as a weakness. I, I've got better emotional intelligence. I can still improve all the time, but I feel like in a, in a really good place, but I know tomorrow is another day and I want to be in a, a brilliant place tomorrow. So I'll continue working on myself to be the best version of me I possibly can. Do you fancy ever getting back into the professional game using what you've got now? You know, you, you said you didn't enjoy it going into coaching straight after football, but now? No, I, like, I would never, I never go back. I don't, I don't want to be a manager. I don't, I don't really, I don't love coaching. I don't love being on the training ground. That's something that I've, that I've learned about myself. I've, I would love to, like I'm always there for people that I've coached before, people to contact me in terms of support and talking if they want someone to talk to in terms of if they're feeling low or going through things similar that I went through. I'm more than happy to do that. But in terms of the professional football side of thing, I think it's time to draw a line under that and embrace the new challenges that are coming. And that sounds exactly like what you're doing. Luke, thanks so much for talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Moment, brought to you by The Athletic. If you were affected by anything you heard in today's episode and would like to speak to someone in confidence, you can call The Samaritans for free, anytime, day or night, on 116123.